I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Moji Alawode Al. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast that helps you navigate the post-row hellscape. We dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with our guests, the abortion providers and activists working on the ground. Plus, we have amazing comedians to help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your pod fix. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. M-S-O-W. Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 47 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, October 22nd. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Oh my gosh, we have so much news to get to in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so much, including how Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheesebro plea deals, yes, that's right, plea deals will impact Jack Smith's ongoing investigation into Trump's unindicted co-conspirators in D.C. And, and Judge Chutkin has granted in part the DOJ's motion for a partial, don't call it a gag order, in the D.C. case, along with Jack Smith's response to Donald's motion to dismiss that case on the grounds that he enjoys absolute monarchy. No, I'm sorry, <laughs> immunity, but kind of the same thing. Uh, and several media outlets have filed a motion now, AG, to try to get the Trump DC trial televised. Uh, and of course, DOJ has opposed that. Yeah, it, that's and that's not all. Okay, that's just a little bit of the show. Uh, we also have some court filings and decisions that will impact Jack Smith's DC case, including Merrick Garland has filed a notice to appeal the Proud Boys sentences. We have a decision from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals that affirms the Department of Justice's broad definition of the word corruptly in the Title 18, 1512C2 statute. Mm -hmm. And down in Florida, we have Walt Nauta's rescheduled conflict of interest hearing for his lawyer, Stanley Woodward, who has conceded, by the way, that he should be precluded from cross-examining Yusil Tavares. Uh, and uh, we also have Jack Smith's motion opposing Trump's request to delay the proceedings in Florida. And Jack Smith has filed to withdraw his subpoena of Trump's super PAC. And wow. Andy, um, 
we've been talking about that potential fraud for a really long time. So I'm, I'm, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that more, but I, I was a little bit surprised by that. Yes. Uh, and I don't know how we're all going to get to all of this today, but we're going to try. So let's start with the plea deals in Fulton County and how that will impact uh, Jack Smith's investigation. You got it. So, okay. Yesterday we learned that Sidney Powell had pled guilty in Fulton County. And so before we get into the details of that, let me just back up a little bit. Um, and let's remember what she was actually charged with, because you have to understand that to appreciate the absolute majesty of this agreement for her personally. Okay, so she was charged in the Fulton County RICO case with, of course, count one, RICO. So she's charged in that count. She is mentioned in, by my count, 12 separate acts of, or criminal acts under that RICO charge. All right, so she's all over it. And she's charged in six other counts, so six other individual crimes, including conspiracy to commit election fraud, computer theft, computer invasion, and conspiracy to defraud the state. Now, most of those crimes had to do with her activity basically directing and coordinating the whole effort to steal information out of the voting machines in Coffee County, Georgia. So she was facing some very serious felony charges that could, of course, have carried a significant uh, risk of a lot of time in jail. Now she's pled to six misdemeanor counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of election duties. Those would be if, I mean, she's not going to go to trial. She's pled guilty. None of those counts would would carry a sentence of longer than a year because they're all misdemeanors. She's a first-time offender, no priors. So she's looking at a very, basically a walk on this entire thing. And yep. what she has to do in in response is, first, she's got to be extensively proffered by the prosecutors in Fulton County, which when I was watching the plea yesterday, it sounds like she's already done that, or at least has done the first part of that. That's basically sitting down with the prosecutors and telling them everything you did. And they're not going to just ask about Coffee County. They're going to want to know every single time she ever met with Donald Trump, everything he ever said, every crazy scheme, every suggestion, the whole shebang. She's got to go over all that stuff. Yeah, and she was at that that really contentious December 18th Oval Office that's meeting right. that ended up in the residence. Yeah, that's um, actually and- one of the charges, one of the uh, RICO acts mm-hmm. that's referred to uh, in the indictment. So they're really going to pick her clean of every piece of information she has about that stuff. Then she has to testify in, quote, all future proceedings. So that's the, whatever, how, when, whatever format this case goes to trial, if there are spinoffs, if other people are charged, if there's a superseding indictment, she has to agree to be a witness for the prosecution in any of those. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty, uh, she's really got to step up and be a legitimate cooperator. She can't go in and plead the fifth. So in other words, if she is put on the stand to testify for the prosecution, they ask her a question, she can't claim Fifth Amendment privilege against, uh, you know, inculpating herself because she's not actually facing any jeopardy, right? To sustain a, a clean invocation of your Fifth Amendment privilege, you have to actually be facing jeopardy. She's not because the prosecutors have already said they're not going to prosecute her beyond these misdemeanors. So she can't do that. And the big thing for me is how this impacts Jack Smith. Okay, so as a preliminary matter, the state court in Georgia 
cannot require her to cooperate in federal court. That's a difference of jurisdiction. But as a practical matter, she kind of has no other way out. We'll all remember, we think she's referred to as one of the unindicted co-conspirators in Trump's uh, D.C. uh, January 6th case. If they were looking to charge her in that case, they can certainly do it now. She will have on record in Fulton County uh, through her guilty plea. She's basically admitted to participating in the conduct that she would likely be indicted for. So she can't. She just essentially has no alternative but to cooperate with federal prosecutors if she's charged. Uh, And that's how I think that will go. Yeah, let me ask you a question, because, you know, she she had her in Fulton County. She had her felonies reduced to misdemeanors. Uh, My understanding is after talking to a couple of former U.S. attorneys and some folks from the used to work for the DOJ, the feds generally don't reduce charges like that. And so if she if she even had time to call up Jack Smith and try to be like, I'm pleading guilty down here. Can we work a deal out up there? I I don't think he would give her less than a felony. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really good point. I thought it was a little bit odd too. Maybe this is more of the practice in Georgia. It's not how it's done on the federal level. Typically in a federal case, you're charged with a bunch of felonies. If you want to cooperate, you typically end up having to plead guilty to one of those felonies you've already been charged with. The other ones go away Mm -hmm. and then the rest of the cooperation deal falls into place. In a rare case, they might dismiss all of the charges, the felonies that they had charged you with, and then re-indict you on a different felony, a slightly less, uh, you know, damaging felony. But you're going to walk away with a felony plea. And the reason for that is if you don't successfully cooperate, so if you don't tell the prosecutors everything you've done, if you lie to them, if you conceal some element of your past criminality, if you get on the witness stand and don't tell the truth, whatever, there's all kinds of ways you can tank your cooperation. So like Manafort, Flynn. Exactly. Yeah. They can turn around and charge you with felonies. The, the, the deal collapses. It's no longer, the prosecutors are no longer bound by it and they can pursue you on the original crimes and add new ones in as well. So, There's great incentive. You know, if you're not going to come on board completely, willingly, enthusiastically, and do everything you can to cooperate successfully, it's a really bad idea to cooperate at all. Done correctly, you get a massive advantage for cooperating. Done incorrectly, you hose yourself for good. Yeah, and honestly, if I'm Jack Smith and I get the call from Sidney Powell's attorneys, I'm going to go out of my way and say she's not the best witness. Oh, my God. (laughs) For the prosecution. terrible. I mean, I might almost say no, like, yeah. but you know, I guess you, you would, I would bring her in to see what she's got because maybe she's got evidence that I can corroborate with a more reliable witness like dun, 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 Kenneth Chesbro, who go. pled guilty There you go. Today. What, a, what a segue. You must be a professional. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So Chesbro today, today's news, he pled today, like literally I guess, m- minutes before the trial was going to start or something. Yeah, as the the potential jurors are lined up outside the courthouse, getting yep. ready to come in and fill out their jury questionnaire. That's right. So he pleads to kind of a similar arrangement, although they did make him eat a felony. Or, I'm sorry, plead to a felony. So he has got that hanging over his head. 
same thing. He's got to cooperate in all future trials in uh, in Georgia. He has to proffer. He has to provide good and and truthful testimony. La, la, la. All this, all the same things apply, and the same kind of implications for. We also thought he he is an unindicted co-conspirator in in the D.C. case. So the same same rules apply for him. It's in terms of witness value. Like she's got so many problems. She has said so many just <laughs> bat. You know what? crazy things in public she's made. She just was out there lying repeatedly about the election, about election fraud, making all kinds of lunatic uh, accusations against whoever, Hugo Chavez, Dominion voting, you know, line them up. So generally tough yeah. witness to use on the stand because you get a lot of impeachable material there. But she g- lost 60 plus cases yeah. for, by, by lying in her pleadings yeah. uh, and being sanctioned. So that's not in good. Michigan. So yeah, no, she's <laughs> all bad. Mm, but like no you said, bueno. look, every, Kenneth, yeah, every cooperator has some damage because look, they were charged with a crime. That's something you got to address head on. Good prosecutors know how to rehabilitate witnesses, how to bring that stuff out on direct examination, and how to how to let the jury know, like, hey, there's a cooperation deal in place here that penalizes the witness if they lie or do something wrong. So there's all kinds of ways to rehabilitate them. She, is she beyond rehabilitation? Maybe. You know, there is a limit. Chesbro, way less known, was way less public, has far fewer, I think, statements on the record. I don't remember him making a lot of public statements. Of course, now his emails uh, and communications about the stuff they were doing have, have become public. So he, he would have to kind of, you know, face a little bit of reckoning with those, but he would be a very good witness. Yeah. And the thing that really amazes me about this, everybody's now talking about who's going to flip next. There will be more people who flip and become cooperators and government witnesses. To figure this, to figure out the real implications of this, what you have to do is look at the people who have flipped and then try to think, who do they have the most information, likely have the most information about? When you think about Cheese Bro, the guy who comes to mind is John Eastman. Yeah. Right? Cheese Bro and Eastman were like linked at the hip on the false uh, fake electors scheme. Chesbro kind of dreamed it up. You know, Eastman gave him the thumbs up. Let's do it. Let's do it. All kinds of communications there. So Cheesebro's flip has got to have ruined Eastman's day today. His calculation of how he's going to defend himself in the federal case or the Georgia case is very different today than it was yesterday. Yeah, and not not only because of this, you know, the obvious reasons, but now that there's not going to be any speedy trial. That's right. Eastman's not going to get to see what the prosecution has. Nobody, none of the remaining co-defendants, of which there are 16, will get to see what the prosecution puts on as their case. So that, you know, then because that was kind of one of the benefits of having some people go first was yep. Trump and Eastman and everybody else could sit back and see what the prosecution had, what they had up their sleeve and then prepare. They would have m- more ability or a, you know, better preparation for their defense. Right. If you know exactly what the prosecution's going to be. Absolutely. Right. This is, you know, when you're thinking like winners, losers, winners today, Powell and Cheesebro, I call them winners because they got good deals and are probably not going to jail. They got a lot of work to do, but they got good deals. 
Uh, Fulton County prosecutors, big winners here. And, you know, you got to give them some credit. They knew this was going to happen all along. When they only got two <laughs> requests for speedy trial, in their minds, they were thinking, those two will flip. We'll, we'll give the cases away to those two, and then we're done with the speedy trial nonsense. We still keep our case to only having to put it on one time. And, you know, the early, the, the sooner you go, the better off you are. And I can't help but think that Sidney Powell getting her felonies reduced to misdemeanors, whereas Cheesebro yep. had to eat a felony. Yep. Um, it might be because he, he wasn't for the first to flip. And, and the next person is not going to get as good of a deal as Cheesebro, That's, I probably That I is imagine. the way that works. And in the loser's column is basically every other defendant. Right. They're all, it just turned up the pressure on all of them. If you're Misty Hampton, Misty Hampton, Misty Hampton, you're thinking, oh no. Kathy Latham. Yeah. All the, all the people involved in that, the shenanigan in Coffee County, they're going to have a witness who, the witness who was in the middle of the whole thing, Sidney Powell, can now sit sit on the stand and just explain all the bad things they did. So in Fulton County, I I would say that Sidney, while Sidney Powell and and Kenneth Chesbro won today in Fulton County, I think they also lost in D.C. Because this is bad for them. This is bad. This has bad implications for them. Indeed, they aren't going to get as good a deal no. in the federal case. They've backed their way into a position now where they really don't, they can't put on a credible defense if they're charged in D.C. Mm-hmm. And maybe they get a deal, maybe they don't, but it's... They're kind of forced into it and they're not going to get the best that's right. That's right. deal because they kind of have to do it. And a cooperator, so. you know, a witness as bad as Powell you're not going to offer them a great deal. You're going to offer them a deal that has a lot of pain in it because you want to well, be able to- That's what I said. If yeah. she called me up, I'd be like, nah, I'm good. Well, it, you, the only <laughs> way you can rehabilitate her is to be able to say to the jury, she's not getting a walk. She's going to jail right. for X number of years. You know? Yep. So yeah, it's, it's, the, it's tough. It's a, it's a brutal process. And when worked- effectively by prosecutors, um, you can really uh, establish some very strong incentives to get people to cooperate. And a lot of those folks, they just got a, a much bigger incentive today as a yeah, result. And of I also two. think this helps Jack Smith out in the fact that, again, because there's no speedy trial, all of that stuff isn't going to call that evidence that, that probably a lot of it overlaps. Oh, yeah. With, with yeah. Jack Smith's uh, charges against Trump. Uh, is not going to come out, so they won't have the benefit of seeing the the, the case presented ahead of, of trial. Um, and speaking of the trial date, which is March 4th, uh, Judge Judge Chutkin um, has granted, in part, Jack Smith's motion for narrowly limiting his extrajudicial pretrial statements. Don't call it a gag order. So I'll just, let me just read you uh, what the official order says. It says all interested parties, all interested parties in this matter, including the parties and their counsel are prohibited from making any public statements or directing others to make any public statements, which has to be hard to police, but still that target one, the special counsel prosecuting this case or his staff two, defense counsel or their staff three, any of this court's staff or other supporting personnel or four, any reasonably foreseeable witness or the substance of their testimony. So some of the hypotheticals that came up in this hearing were pretty great. The Judge Chutkin was like, all right, so hypothetical. What if you wanted to call Bill Barr a slimy liar? Would you be able, <laughs> do you think that's appropriate? <laughs> okay. I, I do. And, 
<laughs> what if she didn't ask me, but I'm saying yes. That's put me down as a yes. Yeah. And and so and then, you know, so Trump cannot call continue to call Jack Smith a thug or deranged or on crack or anything else that he said. He can't tell his kids to do it. Again, I don't know how you police that. He can't tell anybody to do it. Mm-hmm. He can't go after court staff. I'm not sure if that includes the judge herself. Um, but he can't go after the court staff. He can't go after the families of prosecutors, lawyers, court staff. Can't go after witnesses like calling yeah. Barr a slimy liar or calling for the execution of Mark Milley or going after Pence. I, th- um, I think he- she very intentionally left herself out of the order. I think so too. Yeah, she doesn't. I think, so wa- she, I think she didn't want it to seem self protective. And she probably feels like, I'm a judge, I can handle myself. So, yeah, I think that. I think it doesn't cover her, and that was her intent. Yeah, I I, I would tend to agree with that. Um, now, he can call the president crooked Joe Biden. He can do that. No restrictions. He's not a party to this case, is, you know, what they said. Mm-hmm. Um, and no restrictions, really, after going the, after the people of D.C., you know, calling it a cesspool, crime-ridden, whatever, trying to taint the jury pool right. by... You know, and what was funny was his argument is like, but I'm saying terrible stuff about them. How would that help me? <laughs> like, all right, fair enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> what is right? Um, and she right. said, she, <laughs> and she says she she'll be making the decisions on sanctions sua sponte if he violates the gag order, the limited, not a gag order, uh, which means it's up to her. Yeah, she basically. she can just impose sanctions. It's basically a court's ability to act without uh, either party Pleadings, making a motion. Yeah. Right, she can just yeah. do it. Now, Donald Trump, of course, has filed his notice that he's going to appeal this order. Uh, and today he asked for a stay uh, pending the appeal. He, he wants to continue to call Jack Smith a thug uh, and call Bill Barr a slimy liar uh, while, the, uh, while the appeal is pending. I'm, I'm not sure he's going to get that, but he has asked the D.C. court. And then he said to the D.C. court, and if you don't give me a stay, I'm going to go to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So that's his that's what he's doing. I don't think any of that's going to work very well for him, but, uh, you know, they haven't really, they've they've pretty much thrown out the theory of catch more flies with honey, right? They're just not very nice to the judges or the courts that they're making constant requests to, which is bizarre. But yeah, I don't think he'll get the stay, but we'll see. We'll see how that goes. All right. We have a lot more to get to, but we have to take a quick break. So uh, everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Okay, we're going to stay in D.C. for the time being and talk about Trump's motion to dismiss the case, arguing that he enjoys absolute immunity for things that he did while president. So that's not absolute immunity, meaning not just civil side immunity, but from criminal liability. So this motion could result in an interlocutory appeal. And as we discussed last week, that would mean that it would have to be decided before the trial begins. So depending on the resolution of this, if Trump loses, he can appeal and that might cause some delay as that appeal makes its way up the system. So during the limited gag order hearing, Judge Chutkin unequivocally stated that she would not move the trial date from March 4th. Um, so I guess the question is, if Trump filed an interlocutory appeal, would that be enough? Is there enough time, AG, between now and March 4th to resolve this motion for uh, dismissal based on immunity plus any appeals that follow? What do you think? 
Yeah, I think probably. I think I'm, I'm assuming Department of Justice can ask for an expedited appeal schedule. I think he might be granted that. But whether the Supreme Court decides to take it up or not is the question. And based on this filing, I am leaning toward the Supreme Court not taking up, not granting cert on this because it seems like settled law. I mean, they cited a million cases going back to Burr in the 1800s. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this because it, it is such a strong piece of, of legal work that it makes me think that the Supreme Court might not be interested. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. So let's get right into the meat of it. So DOJ this week filed their opposition to his motion to dismiss. And here's some of the some of the notable points they make. Okay, so they point out that defendant Donald Trump moves to dismiss the indictment, asking the court to afford him absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for what he expansively claims was official conduct during his presidency. They go on to say, that novel approach to immunity would contravene the fundamental principle that, quote, no man in this country is so high that he is above the law. And that's, they take from U.S. versus Lee in 1882. So pretty well settled law there. Yeah. And I noticed too, they say the novel approach to immunity. And yeah. and you'll notice they kind of repeat that idea. Like this is brand, this is novel. You would be creating law here by a massive and significant piece of law that goes right at the heart of separation of powers, the power of the presidency. I mean, this is no trifling matter. So they go on to say the defendant is not above the law. He is subject to the federal criminal laws like more than 330 million other Americans, including members of Congress, federal judges, and everyday citizens. None of the sources that the defendant points to in his motion, the Constitution's text and structure, history and tradition, or Supreme Court precedent, supports the absolute immunity he asks the court to create for him. Again, there's your, Mm -hmm. they're really pounding that theme of you're creating new law here. And, Mm -hmm. And staking his claim, he purports to draw a parallel between his fraudulent efforts to overturn the results of an election that he lost and the likes of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and George Washington's Farewell Address. This this next sentence is my favorite. These things are not alike, <laughs> period. <laughs> it's such a nice way to put that. It's just like such stating the obvious, but in a very effective way. Okay, so the more apt parallel the defendant identifies is to judges who, like a former president, enjoy absolute immunity from civil damages liability for certain conduct, but who are, quote, subject to criminal prosecutions as are other citizens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and they go on to say that no court has ever alluded to the existence of absolute criminal immunity for former presidents, and legal principles, historical evidence, and policy rationales demonstrate that once out of office, a former president is subject to federal criminal prosecution like other citizens. And that is the citation from U.S. v. Burr from 1807. The defendant's novel request for yeah. absolute immunity directly conflicts with the Constitution's impeachment judgment clause. That's a U.S. Constitution, mm-hmm. Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7, which expressly contemplates the criminal prosecution of a former president for acts committed during and ultimately resulting in the president's removal from the presidency. The provision ensures, among other things, that an officer who has been removed through impeachment 
cannot seek refuge in the principles of double jeopardy to avoid what? Criminal Criminal prosecution. prosecution. (laughs) I hadn't thought of this. I had not thought of the Constitution's impeachment clause, especially given what Donald Trump said about it during his impeachment. (laughs) And we'll get to that in a second. The defendant, however, would turn the impeachment judgment clause on its head and have the court read it as a sweeping grant of immunity that forbids criminal prosecution in the absence of a Senate conviction, which, among other things, would effectively preclude any form of accountability for a president who commits crimes at the end of his term of office. The defendant dismissed this very approach to the impeachment judgment clause as nonsense and complete canard during his second impeachment trial, and the court should do the same here. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Like, pow. I don't know how more, much more clear you can make it. The impeachment clause says that double jeopardy doesn't apply to crimes of an impeached person committed while in office. You cannot say you are absolute immune from criminal prosecution because of this clause. And you yourself, Trump, said in your second impeachment that the impeachment clause, that his the way you know he's using this mm-hmm. during his impeachment was nonsense. And they're like, you, the court, you should agree with that. Yeah, I, I couldn't believe that in the motion the first time I read it. I was like, hold on a second. Are they actually saying like, you can't possibly be prosecuted unless you've been convicted during a pe- impeachment? So mm-hmm. there, therefore, the failure to convict in an impeachment gives you somehow immunity from later prosecution. It's like reading the Constitution in the exact opposite way that it was actually written. So I'm glad yeah. they went right at that. The other thing that really uh, strikes me here, when I first read the motion, and we talked about it, I think, two weeks ago, I got really caught up in the, holy cow, like this theory is antithetical to the the actual reason that the founding fathers decided we're done with England, right? It's yeah. It cuts to the very heart of why we became a country at all. And I couldn't get past that like big overarching theme that if he gets away with this, we've really forever altered what our democracy looks like. And, and then after the fact, I thought, you know, oh, I, sh- I, I really got too caught up in that. I should have look- thought more about, you know, the comparison, civil liability, criminal liability, the recent cases that point in the opposite direction. Not perfectly on point, but, but I was kind of glad that this filing by DOJ really starts out by hammering that message that the reason we are here as a country is because we didn't want a king. We don't want a monarchy. And having one person be completely immune from civil and criminal law. That's what you get. That's that's yeah. a monarchy, essentially. And that's why they cite U.S. v. Lee, 1882, U.S. v. Burr, 1807. And here in the next paragraph, they cite the Federalist Papers, Federalist 65. Writing as Publius in support of the Constitution's adoption, Alexander Hamilton explained that an impeachment would not terminate the chastisement of the offender, because, quote, after having been sentenced to a perpetual ostracism from the esteem and confidence after being impeached and honors and emoluments of his country, he will still be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law. One of the founding principles of this country. That's right. Um, they go on to say, offering no more than a cursory footnote for the claim that the absolute civil immunity recognized in Fitzgerald, that's the civil immunity, should grant Trump 
comparable immunity from criminal prosecution, the defendant contends that he is permanently immune from criminal liability for any conduct that falls within the outer perimeter of his official presidential duties, which he maintains should be assessed at a high level of abstraction. And they go on to say that the implications of the defendant's unbounded immunity theory are startling. It would grant absolute immunity from criminal prosecution to a president who accepts a bribe in exchange for a lucrative government contract for a family member. A president who instructs his FBI director to plant incriminating evidence on a political enemy. A president who orders the National Guard to murder his most prominent critics. Or, and I like this kicker at the end, a president who sells nuclear secrets to a foreign adversary. Hold that space. <laughs> That's a nice little twist I mean, there. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then they get to the even if, because you know the DOJ is like, even if you don't believe in the founding principles of our country, even if a former president were entitled to immunity from criminal prosecution comparable to immunity from civil liability, dismissal is still not warranted here. Dismissal is at a minimum unwarranted because the defendant has no remotely viable claim that all of the indictment's allegations involve acts within the outer perimeter of his official responsibility. So even if you throw away our entire Constitution, you're you're being silly if you think that what he did falls within his job description. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a ray of of daylight on a on a kind of technicality that would undermine the motion as well. And I think it's kind of hinted at here. They're, they're the court is required basically on the motion to dismiss to basically take the indictment at its face. And if you do that, if you, if you just accept the facts that are alleged in the indictment for the purpose of determining the motion to dismiss, there's really no way that you can conclude that what he did was within the outer perimeter of presidential duties. And so I think without even getting into some of the more, uh, the more basic and, and broad kind of thematic issues that we've been talking about, there's even, you know, there's some very kind of mechanical grounds that on appeal, you know, an appellate court could say, nah, forget it. N nothing to yeah. see here. Yeah, I think it'll be denied. Uh, I'm sure the only question here is going to be how long it takes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Right. Whether the Supreme Court hears it, whether they hear arguments, if they just shut it down. I, that's really the only question here is how long it'll take to get through the courts. One last little bit of news, by the way, from D.C. NBC has filed a 43 page motion seeking to televise Trump's D.C. trial. They argue that in modern history, there were two examples of a president testifying in criminal proceedings about his presidency, and both ultimately were aired on television. Reagan during Iran-Contra prosecution and Clinton before the D.C. grand jury. NBC says USA v. Trump is even more momentous than those. It joins earlier applications submitted by the press coalition, but comes at it from different angles. So, uh, But both applications were filed per D.C. rules as related miscellaneous actions and then referred to Judge Chutkin. So she'll make, that, she'll make a ruling on that, but we don't have it yet. So I just wanted to bring that up. Good one. D DOJ opposes it. Yeah, so. I think that's pretty understandable. I think, and and I my gut feeling here, I don't have anything to basis on, is Chuck can lean in this direction as well. I think they're trying to kind of make this as normal as they can. It's far from normal, really, but to kind of uh, invite the courts in when that's not typically done, despite 
NVC is citing uh, some precedent there. I think it's you just you're you're creating a hornet's nest of issues that Trump will use for on appeal and screaming and yelling about and I don't know. I I don't I don't see this happening, but we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I want it televised because I want to watch it. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to watch I'm it. I'm for transparency. I I assume the arguments against it, at least some of them I've heard are, you know, as it goes on, the jury's going to have to be sequestered and not be able to see any of that and uh, you know, it could taint the jury like uh, all that all, your typical arguments. Yeah. Um that you normally hear from Department of Justice about trying things in the court of public opinion. Uh, and possibly jeopardizing the fairness of the case. But we'll see what ends up happening. Yeah, I don't really think any of those are good arguments. I think they should have been doing this for years. But um, the fact Agreed. that they're not doing it broadly and as a, um, you know, as a matter of practice, I think they're going to be hard-pressed to want to change course in the middle of this case. But we'll see. Yeah. yeah, well, we'll keep an eye on it for you. All right, we're going to head down to Florida, but first we need to take a quick break. So everybody, stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. All right. Let's head to Florida begrudgingly. I know you want to. Uh, Let's start with the conflict of interest hearings. We know last week, Carlos de Oliveira waived his conflict of interest and the judge, Judge Eileen Cannon, allowed him to keep John Irving as his lawyer. But in the Walt Nauta hearing, which happened the same day directly after the de Oliveira hearing, uh, Judge Cannon got upset with the Department of Justice because apparently DOJ argued Stanley Woodward, Nauta's lawyer, should not be able to do any summations during trial. And DOJ had not made that argument in previous briefings. They had only briefed about cross-examination. And Woodward said he was not prepared to argue anything but cross-examination. So she postponed and asked for additional briefings. And the Walt Nauta Garcia hearing took place just this past Friday on October 20th. Now, in the meantime, DOJ filed a supplemental to their motion for a Garcia hearing. And in it, they say defendant Waltine Naldo's attorney, Stanley Woodward, cannot ethically cross-examine former client Trump employee four, that's Yusil Tavares, who will be a significant witness at trial. As the government stated in its initial motion for a Garcia hearing filed more than two months ago, I love those little jabs, filed more than two months ago. An attorney's cross-examination of a current or former client presents a conflict of interest, unquote. Nor can Mr. Woodward otherwise seek to discredit UCL Tavares at trial, including in closing arguments. The same ethical considerations similarly limit Mr. Woodward's ability to cross-examine or otherwise discredit witness one, a potential government witness who Woodward continues to represent. After consistently denying the existence of conflicts and resisting these ethical limitations, Mr. Woodward today informed the government for the first time that neither he nor any member of his law firm will cross-examine UCL Tavares or Witness One at trial on any subject, and that any cross-examination will instead be handled by co-counsel. Mr. Woodward also appears to recognize that he may face ethical limitations on his ability (laughs) to discredit. It's amazing how that happens. (laughs) Just called us up today, Judge, uh, that he may face ethical limitations on his ability to discredit UCL Tavares or Witness One outside of cross-examination, including during those closing arguments, the whole argument we brought up during the last hearing that made y'all mad. Which any lawyer engaged in this case should have been able to understand that that was the point of referencing the closing uh, argument. But let's, I I digress. Uh, Let's keep moving on. Yeah. And again, an experienced jurist, um, 
would have been able to handle that. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, the court should so inform Nauta and determine whether Nauta knowingly and voluntarily waives his right to conflict-free counsel despite these limitations on Mr. Woodward. Despite all those limitations, Nauta has told the court he wants to keep Woodward, who Trump is paying for, and Judge Aileen Cannon let it happen. So she's allowing that to go forward, I guess. I mean, I don't even know where to begin on this. You know, we would love to have been a fly on the wall in the courtroom when the judge had reacted negatively to DOJ's reference to cross-examinations when the thing was originally argued because I got to imagine Woodward knew exactly what they were talking about. But it was likely teed up to him by the judge in the context of what's this reference to cross to closing arguments? I didn't hear anything about that. You didn't have it in your papers. In are you ready, Mr. To, Woodward? Mr. Woodward, yeah, are, are you, you ready prepared? to talk to the the question or the issue of closing arguments as well? I'm sure Woodward was like, no, Judge. Uh, I, uh, no, you know what? You bring up a very good point, Judge Cannon. That's I right. am not prepared. Mm, what a bunch of jerks. I have no briefs on that. I have no briefs on at all. Please let us out of here. So I think that's probably what happened there because Woodward knows what he's doing and is taking advantage when it gets thrown to him in the middle of a hearing, which this is at least the second time that's happened now. He's taking advantage of every opportunity to drag things out. Yep. So it's, uh, you know, there we got a couple of questions uh, from listeners this week about about De Oliveira and whether or not his waiving the conflict, essentially, that's what you're doing. If you say, I want to stay with my lawyer, you're waiving the conflict. Could it possibly have been voluntary and intelligent? Did he have a, a translator in the courtroom because he doesn't speak English as a first language? And could he even really have understood what was going on? Those are all good questions. I'm sure he probably had or was at least uh, offered translate translation services. That's very standard in federal court. But these guys are in a tough spot, Nauta and uh, De Oliveira. And I'm not surprised. It doesn't seem tough to me, man. I would be like, let me talk to another lawyer. And then I would weigh my chances. But I am not in their shoes. Yeah, but think about it. Like, so. it's not just a lawyer. It's the ability to pay for a lawyer. It's the job you still have. You still work Public for Trump every day. Free. Yeah, but th- it's like... It's not just switching lawyers. If they decide to go with a different lawyer, they're basically walking away from Trump. So they're probably figuring, that's it. I'm kicked out of the kingdom. I lose my job. I lose my income. I You're lose the support of this guy. You write a book and you'll get a CNN contract. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe that's the kind of <laughs> advice I would be giving him as a, as a, as a public defender. And, but like, and maybe you're not wrong. I mean, that seems to be what's happened to Cassidy Hutchinson, right? Yeah. I'm not in their shoes. I do not know what it's like to be them. But yeah. I, it's, if I'm looking, I have an example in Uciel Tavares, and I'm seeing him not in jail. Yeah. Does he still work there? Do we know? Does he still work at Mar-a-Lago? I think he does still work there. I'm not sure. Well, I don't know. I think there's a lot weighing on these guys uh, in terms of how they think about this thing, and they're probably not thinking about it from the most sophisticated kind of legal experience background. So it's frustrating, but I'm not totally surprised at how this is playing out. Yeah, me neither. All right, so what's going on with the SEPA delay, though? Well... Okay, staying in Florida, you're going to recall that Trump filed a motion to delay SEPA proceedings and then again to delay the entire trial based on his uh, fuzzy math that DOJ has been slow walking the discovery process. 
So DOJ filed their opposition to that and contended that Trump's issues with the SEPA hearings were nothing more than pretext to upend the entire trial schedule. Now, of course, Judge Cannon ended up, what did she do? Stayed the SEPA calendar. Hold on. Hold on. Let's, okay, stop. Everyone stop. Just stand in place. Don't move forward. (laughs) Don't pass go. Don't do any work. Just let me have a minute to catch up. Okay, sorry. She stayed the SEPA calendar while she contemplates the filings. So since then, DOJ has filed its opposition to extend the deadlines, which it filed on October 16th, and a supplemental response to the standing discovery order. All right, so from DOJ's opposition to extend the deadlines, they say, facing an upcoming deadline for discovery requests and motions to compel on October 20th, 2023, Defendants have filed another motion to stay the deadlines indefinitely. The government has complied and exceeded its discovery obligations to date. The defense has demonstrated that they are fully equipped to file a motion to compel any unclassified discovery they seek, which is the right way to resolve that problem. And the government does not oppose a 10-day extension of the deadline to file a motion to compel classified discovery given the complications surrounding the defense access to classified discovery that they have now resolved. They go on to say, the defense motion misrepresents the record regarding the production of classified and unclassified discovery, disregards their own demonstrated ability to formulate requests for additional unclassified discovery, and fails to disclose the government's position during a conferral on this motion in which the government agreed to a brief continuance of the deadline for any motions to compel classified discovery. The defendant's motion for an indefinite extension should be denied. Now, due to the unforeseen complications regarding the defense's access to some of the classified material, which have now been resolved, the government does not object to an extension until October 30 for the defense to file motions to compel classified discovery with the defense informing the government by October 20 if they have additional requests, as the defense originally proposed to allow time for conferral. So what they're saying here is basically, we've given you everything. There was a couple of logistical issues around classified discovery. That's likely a reference to defense attorneys not having clearances and this argument over where's the skiff, where's the location where this stuff is actually going to be provided to them. Is it going to be in the courthouse? Is it going to be, you know, where is it going to be in Florida? That sort of stuff. They resolved all of that. And DOJ is basically saying, if the defense has a specific problem with discovery, you don't come in and ask to delay the trial. You don't come in and try to throw the entire trial schedule out the window. You file a motion to compel the production of evidence. And those motions are heard quickly and resolved. And the judge can be the arbiter of yes, government, you have to do this, and here's the date you have to get it done by, or the, or they can just deny the motion. So again, you, you have to see this for what it is. This is really all just a blatant effort to create excuses for delay. Agreed. Yeah. They even go on to say, we'd like to correct the record, you know, uh, regarding the timing of, uh, of classified discovery and its status. Um, they say, as the government informed the defense on October 6th, the government produced to classified information security officer, that's the CSIO, about 2,400 pages of classified discovery. The government inquired of the defense on the next day, October 7th, when the defense was planning next to be in Florida. 
to continue its review so that the government could ensure the discovery was available. Trump's counsel responded that day that they were unsure of their travel plans, but would keep you posted. We'll keep you posted. And then Trump's lawyers responded that same day. They said, we don't know what our travel plans are. So the next day, the DOJ is like, what are your travel plans? They're like, oh, we're going to be there the October 16th. So the government immediately arranged for those documents to be available when they were going to be there on October 16th. And the CISO informed the government and the defense that the SCIF and a second Florida location have been approved. That would resolve all the issues. Right. And he didn't want to get there before October 16th anyway. So the government arranged for delivery of the remaining materials to the SCIF for review. Um, And so for the foregoing reasons... We'll give you a 10-day extension to file your problems with classified discovery, but you don't need to have this whole thing postponed until after the election uh, to do that. And then get this. The very next day after they filed that very complete and what I consider to be clear filing, Judge Cannon put a minute order on the docket saying, quote, the parties are advised that the production of classified discovery is deemed timely upon the placement in an accredited facility in the Southern District of Florida, not another federal district. It's the responsibility of the Office of Special Counsel to make and carry out arrangements to deposit such discovery to defense counsel in the district. No, it's not. It's the CISO's job. The OSC shall update or clarify any prior responses to the standard discovery order in accordance with this order. And, and, and then we get a filing a couple days later, which was on the October 19th, which is a basically, see my previous email. Like th- This is what this whole order is. Pursuant to this court's order, October 17th, the government, that's the real snotty kind of minute right. order. Right. You're supposed to do it in Florida. You should know. And it's your responsibility. And it's not. She's wrong on that. But anyway, they go, the Department of Justice says, the government has provided four productions of classified discovery as described below and in our prior filing. First, <laughs> as described in an unclassified discovery letter to the defense dated September 13th, 2023, this year, the date of the entry of the SEPA Section 3 protective orders, the government on that date made available in the defense SCIF to defense counsel with the necessary security clearances its first classified discovery. Second, as described in a September 28, 2023 letter to the defense, on September 26th, a second production of classified discovery was delivered to the defense SCIF in the Southern District of Florida. Mm-hmm. We'll call that production two. Third, as described in unclassified and classified October 6th discovery letters to the defense, a third production of classified discovery was prepared for the defense counsel and delivered to the classified information security officer in D.C. on that date in response to a defense request to make it available by then. As in all federal criminal cases involving classified discovery, to ensure confidentiality for the defense, the government does not have access to the SCIF, your defense SCIF. To deliver classified discovery to the defense SCIF requires the presence of either the CISO or appropriately cleared members of your team, the defense lawyers. On October 17th, after the defense informed the government it would be in Florida to receive classified discovery, the government provided classified discovery production three in person to the defense counsel at the defense SCIF in the Southern District of Florida. Fourth, in an unclassified October 16th discovery letter to the defense, the government informed the defense it would provide to it the following day a fourth production of classified discovery consisting of materials. Although the defense SCIF is now approved for the review and discussion of all classified discovery, 
It is not yet approved for the storage of certain extremely sensitive materials, which the government refers to as special measures documents. Some of those materials in Classified Discovery Production 1 and Classified Discovery Production 3 included these documents. As the government previewed for the defense on its October 16th letter, the materials were made available yesterday, October 18th, for the defense's review on a read and return basis. So we told you on October 16th they would be available on the 18th, and Judge Cannon entered her order on the 17th. So every single thing that she was asking for had already been done. Right. I guess she just didn't read or understand. I'm not sure. But it this is embarrassing to her, in my opinion, for the, the, for the Department of Justice to have to come in and say, first of all, it's the CISO's responsibility, not the special counsel's office. Second of all, we did all this. Here's when we said it the first time. Here's when we said it the second time. Here's when we said it the third time. Here's when it was in Florida. Here's when we told you it was going to be in Florida because you asked us for it to be in Florida on that day. Like, it is embarrassing, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. And it, it really shows you why it shows you the significance of having a case like this where SEPA is really a factor, right? Not like the DC case or there's some SEPA issues, but it's going to be pretty cut and dry. SEPA is at the heart of this thing. We're talking about a classified documents case, right? Or a, a national defense information documents case. So to have it in a district where these cases don't normally go and in front of a judge who's never dealt with SEPA before, doesn't really understand the rules around this stuff is a real problem for the government because you're going to keep running into this. The answer is she doesn't know. She's never done this before. She's never had a case like this. She doesn't know about CISOs and um, you can't just show up at this defense gift, let yourself in, drop some things on the table and walk away. It doesn't work that way. So it's going to be a constant problem. But the DOJ's brought up like, hey, we know there's a lot of classified in this case, but our case in chief is going to be presented and proven with the unclassified discovery. So could you chill? Like, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, what part of we are bringing it per the defense request to a skiff in the Southern District of Florida? Do you not understand? Right. Like, it's bad. Like, I mean, I get it if you don't understand some of the super, like some of the, you know, the funnel that Brian Greer described to us mm -hmm. of, as the order of operations for for SEPA hearings and SEPA sections of, of that law. OK, maybe. But like to, to to come out in a minute order and say, you have to put this in the Southern District of Florida, not in some other jurisdiction. Huh. And then to have the DOJ point out to you the m multiple times where they've said that every time yeah. it was supposed to be in the Southern District of Florida, well, it was. Even getting prickly over that, it's got to be in Florida, nowhere else, is kind of similar to her uh, outrage over finding out that they were using a grand jury in D.C. Like, yeah. that was totally normal. That stuff happens all the time. She just doesn't know because she's and he very had to, And they had to come out and explain it to her and be like, here's why, and here's why we did this. Yeah. And he, she's an embarrassment to judges. What really concerns me is I think that, you know, she's probably very aware of the fact that, like, jerks like me are out in public saying she's inexperienced and poses a danger to the trial. And all that is making her probably pretty, pretty defensive and she's going to start kind of holding that against the government because 
the government knows the stuff she doesn't know. It's like a, it's almost kind of a, a you know, like a uh, insecurity. And the government is constantly raising problems that she has to deal with and exposing the fact that she doesn't really know what to do with them. And that frustration and insecurity on her part, I think, could start to reflect very negatively on the government in terms of the, the rulings that she comes up with. Yeah. So it's really, it's really a concern. When people ask me, which, you know, I'm sure you get the same questions from friends and stuff, like what's the, what's the health of the case? What, what do you see happening? This case is an amazingly strong case on the evidence. It's like unbelievable, right? It never, ever would yeah. have gone this far were the defendant anyone else. But the wild card is Eileen Cannon. Yeah, and if you don't have the jurisprudence, the temperament, to not take out your weird, I don't know, jurisdiction jealousy on the Department of Justice. You shouldn't be a judge. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she she was approved. Yeah, by that the ship is American sailed. Bar Association. So <laughs> she's yeah. in for life. She's in <laughs> for life. All right. We have to take one more quick break. Then we're going to come back with a couple of random stories and some uh, listener questions. So stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Okay, a few more things to cover, AG. First up, from the Washington Post, we learned that Special Counsel Jack Smith has withdrawn, yes, I said, withdrawn a subpoena seeking records about fundraising by the Political Action Committee Save America, which, of course, is a group that's controlled by former President Donald Trump and whose activities related to efforts to block the results of the 2020 presidential election. I don't get this. I don't, I don't get it at all. <laughs> if this is the pack that pays all the lawyers, this is, I mean, I don't understand this at all. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, it's a tough one to kind of wrap your head around, especially when, I don't know, you and I have thought from the beginning that this would, would provide a particularly fertile ground for investigative efforts, all kinds of opportunities to pursue fraud cases based on false statements that the PAC was using to raise money, uh, misappropriation of funds, you know, you're taking donors' money, people who are donating to one thing and using it for something else. So felt like there was a lot there. The fact that they had been subpoenaed, you know, there were these little signs that they were, in fact, the PAC was, in fact, under investigation. So do we interpret this now as a sign that they're no longer under investigation, that that's not going anywhere? I don't know. I guess we could, but it's also possible that maybe they just decided this subpoena wasn't worth the fight, that the, the information they were looking for, maybe they were able to get it through some other means um, and they don't need the subpoena anymore. I'm just, I'm just trying to think around the corner. The only other thing I could think of is if... If Jack Smith himself is not investigating obstruction into his own investigation, I, I don't know why you would do that, but maybe he's handed that off to a different agency, the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, maybe he's having somebody else look at obstruction. Um, because, you know, if there, you know, if there was some sort of obstruction of justice with the lawyers being paid or some sort of, you know, with the Cassidy Hutchinson or the, the Nauda, uh, Stanley Woodward situation that, that maybe he's like, let's hand that off. So I don't want to investigate obstruction into my own investigation. 
I don't know. I'm just throwing stuff against the wall right now because that seemed like a really strong, not necessarily the obstruction part, but the wire fraud part, defrauding donors seemed like a real strong argument. Unless again, he's so third rail about, you know, freedom of speech that he doesn't want to bring any charges against anything. Yeah. But it seems like he would finish investigating it first. Right. You know, right. Do we know the actual substance of the subpoena? We knew that they had received one, but I don't remember ever seeing reporting on the details of the subpoena. Uh, no, it was just documents related to to fundraising. I mean, there's yeah. been a lot of public reporting, but you know, of course, I don't think that anybody's actually um, been able to get a, see a copy of the subpoena. Yeah. So, so it's it's possible it's possible that lawyers for the pack were pushing back on the subpoena and threatening to file a motion to quash it. Maybe there was something wrong with the subpoena. Maybe on the on its face there was language that was problematic, and they've pulled it back and will now refile a new one. So there's, I think it's it's a weird sign, but I don't want to prejudge the existence or non-existence of an investigation based only on this. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, it doesn't mean he's done with this investigation. Doesn't mean he's handed it off. It could it could be a we don't need this particular subpoena anymore, uh, and we don't want to fight it. Right. We've or rather enough than, evidence. Yeah, rather than fighting with you over it, we're just going to pull it. We're going to withdraw it. We're going to come at you with different language that you can't fight over. I mean, who knows? Could yeah, or we, like got the, we got the information from someone else, and maybe they're trying to sue to block it, and he just <clears throat> doesn't need the headache. I, you know, who knows? Who knows? All right. Remember the Robertson case? Yes. This was the last case challenging the Department of Justice's use of Title 18 U.S. Code Section 1512C2 obstructing an official proceeding. Uh, this is a rioter, a January 6th rioter. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has sided with the Department of Justice. This uh, came down on Friday, October 20th, uh, because Robertson was saying... I, I couldn't have acted corruptly here when I uh, obstructed an official proceeding because I don't get any pecuniary, you know, benefit. You know, uh, uh, Trump gets to stay president, right. or be, you know, be president or I get to install Trump as president. What do I get? I don't get anything, you know. Right. So that was his argument. Um, and it, here's here's the uh, brief decision from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. In this appeal, Robertson contends that the evidence was insufficient to show he acted corruptly as Section 1512C2 requires. He also challenges his 87-month-long sentence, making new arguments on appeal that the district court erred in applying two specific offense characteristics for obstruction of the administration of justice, so the sentencing recommendations based on the statute. Because the evidence was sufficient to establish that Robertson acted corruptly and the district court did not plainly err in applying the specific offense characteristics, we affirm. And so they, 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 they're going with the broad definition, the one that's always been there, the one we said, they'll just leave it alone. They're going to leave this law alone and the way that it's been interpreted for yeah. a very long time is going to stand. And that's what they said. This was Judge Pan writing for the 2-1 majority. Judge Henderson was a Bush appointee, dissented. Uh, and Merrick Garland, by the way, has filed notice that he intends to appeal the Proud Boys sentences for being too short. As you'll know, they were convicted of seditious conspiracy, but also of 1512C2. So all of this clears the runway, I guess, yeah. for charging Trump with 1512C2. And depending on the... I can't wait to read the appeals from Merrick Garland on the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys sentences because in order to... 
for to make sentencing recommendations, Department of Justice has to keep in mind like similarly situated criminals. You can't put someone away for 10 years when you normally only put people away for five years for doing that same kind of crime. And so appealing the length of the Oath Keepers uh, and Proud Boys sentences would, uh, if successful, would allow the Department of Justice to ask for those longer sentences for somebody like Donald Trump. Right. Right. It's essentially kind of raising the roof on what's the de facto roof on that sentence. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the roof the roof is on fire as you know ag uh, i'm well, sorry uh, yeah at the, at the republican house of representatives <laughs> yeah yeah so that's really interesting i think the interpretations is the one we expected to see but it's good to get it anyway you know corruptly doesn't mean what you did put money in your own pocket there's all kinds of other motivations that can make something corrupt and that's essentially what all the courts now have have acknowledged, and like you said, yeah, it's it's smooth sailing or clear sailing at this point for mm-hmm. conditions are clear to apply those to uh, to Trump, and uh, we'll see what happens when that happens. Yeah, and Judge Henderson's dissent was ridiculous, by the way. Uh, Judge Henderson was saying, "Look, if you don't have to show that somebody was going to put money in their pocket, then." Any crime could be considered corrupt. Uh, and, and it's like, well, yeah, kind of. And it was just, it was a weird. <laughs> That's kind of the idea. But okay, <laughs> it yes. was a weird Thanks for dissent. making my point. It was a really weird dissent, but um, that's Judge Henderson for you. Uh, all right, so he can appeal this. Obviously, he can appeal it on Bonk. He can appeal it to the Supreme Court. Uh, I I don't think that it's going to change uh, the law, but we're, we're one step closer to closing this thing out. Roger that. Roger that. All right, questions. Shall we get to questions? Yeah, do we have a good listener question this week? We have a couple. And so I'm I'm proposing we do a couple, but in speed round. All right. So this is okay. gonna be like short answers on a couple of good questions. We got so many this week. I wanted to I wanted to hit up a few. Okay. So first we're going out to Johan in Sweden. And Johan says, My question is short. Why is it called in camera when a judge reviews something alone? Johan, here's the answer. In camera is Latin. Uh uh, translated literally, it means in chambers, um, i.e. in the part of the court that is just for the judge that the public cannot see, right? The courtroom is public, the jury's in there, the public is in there watching the trial. The chambers are 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 exclusive to the judge, so that's where the judge does private business. That's where he'll like, talk to the the counsel, sometimes they'll examine a witness in there if they don't want the witness's uh, testimony to be exposed to the jury, that sort of thing. So uh, that's why they call it in camera. It's business that gets conducted in the judge's chambers. Latin. There you Always go. with the Latin. Always with the Latin. Okay. So next one, do people who plead guilty always tell all they know to prosecutors? We don't have a name on this question. I'm sorry about that, but it's a good question. What if they plead <laughs> ignorance on some issues when they might actually know the details? If the prosecutor doesn't already have that information, might the defendant get away with being less than forthcoming? Yes. 
Yeah. Yes. Next question. I mean, if you don't have if you don't have evidence that they are not being fully forthcoming, you can't prove that they aren't. So yeah, yeah. I, I imagine this happens a lot. It you would does. know better than me. It does. Important to remember though that like pleading guilty and cooperating are not always the same, right? Some people just plead guilty, never say a word, keep their mouths shut, take their secrets with them, and that's totally fine. Uh, prosecutors offer a deal, guy takes it. You don't have to cooperate. Cooperation requires that you plead guilty and then also that you tell the truth. And there's incentive built into the system so that if if you do lie and you're caught, your deal gets blown up and you're back at square one and you've now made all these admissions on the record. So it's a really bad thing. So yeah. And happens. you don't know what the prosecutors That's don't right. know. That's right. So it happens all <laughs> the time. It's a really important job of mostly falls on the heads of the agents involved or the cops that as you're telling them things in the proffer, they got to be going out constantly and like vetting what you're telling, what the witness cooperator is telling them. And as soon as they find out he's lying, it's a bad day for the cooperator. All right. Final question. This one comes in. Dear A, McSee and AG. Uh, I have listened to your podcast religiously since its inception. I count myself indescribably fortunate to enjoy the intelligent, insightful uh, interpretation of each, each week's developments. Oh, wait. It gets better. Delivered by two such fabulously appealing and silver-toned voices as yours. I feel <laughs> sorry for anyone who goes anywhere else for their jack news. You know I'm reading that question. I mean. That, that is by far one of the kindest intros to right. listener questions <laughs> We've ever had, That's and I did that in my silk, my silky. That was voice you being you. full silver tone right there. All right, thank you. And we don't have a name, which kills me because I would love to give someone credit for this, but you know who you are, and we thank you deeply. All right, the question is: My question is about the stolen presidential records that the former guy has not returned. Does the special counsel have any mechanism to recover documents that are not related to national security and not part of the indictment? Short answer. No, it really doesn't. Your, their chance to get that stuff back was with a search warrant, which they did at Mar-a-Lago, but they did not do anyplace else. Uh, in order to get a warrant, they'd have to prove to a federal judge that there's evidence of a crime in that location. That would give them the right to go in and look around. And then in the course of that, they could pick that stuff up. But as long as it was described in the warrant. But the odds of that happening, I think, are pretty slim at this point. Yeah. And there were quite a few missing boxes, somewhere between 20 and 30. Um, yeah. Not that they were filled to the brim with all classified information, but they had been gone through uh, and, you know, moved to Bedminster. But yeah, by the time it got there, there was not there. I guess there was no fresh evidence to to go in and search and grab it back. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's got to be which is interesting. It's got to be fresh. You got to have like very recent intel that says that the evidence is there, which I I assume that was part of the problem they had. Um, I would be shocked if they didn't. They hadn't gone through the motions of try, of seeing if they had enough for a search warrant at Bedminster. I'm sure they did that and likely determined they did not, and so they didn't pursue it. Yeah, um, it could have come down to you know we knew Walt Nauta moved boxes after you know trying to destroy videotapes and and move boxes to Bedminster, and they probably asked Tavares and you know, uh, witness one, like, did you see what was in the boxes? No, I didn't actually see what was in the boxes. Yep. And so that's it. I mean, that's enough to, and you know, it, it's, it's good 
for criminal defendants' rights and and the rights of the people of the United States. That, of course, that you yeah. can't just go into somebody's house and search their stuff, kind of without that kind of direct evidence. So right. if you think about it from that point of view, I you maybe you, maybe you'll feel a little better. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> and let's remember, Marlago, they, they can were do it there. to me. They can do it to you. That's no, right. no. They were there in Mar-a-Lago, right? They had gone down for the infamous meeting, so they knew what was there. They knew how many bo- documents were there. So they didn't have any of those same interactions in Bedminster. So very, very different set of facts there. But yes, it's a high bar. Uh, you know where it wasn't a high bar? In England. The king could just- <laughs> Where presidents are kings? That's right. The king could just send his troops out to your house and they could come busting in and take whatever they wanted. That's why we came over here and we set this place up (laughs) to have a president, not a king. And oh, by the way, the president comes under the scope of criminal law. Isn't that a cool thing? Yeah. I think it's one of the cool founding principles. For sure. sure. Especially especially this week. Um, Thank you for those incredible questions. If you have a question you want to send to us, there's a link in the show notes for you to do that. And you can fill out a, a little question form. We would love to hear from you. Um, that is it. Wow. We we made it through. It was kind of a long episode, but there was just so much information we really wanted to get out to you. We didn't want to leave any of those juicy details out of those filings. And who knows what kind of news broke while we were sitting here recording this. I'll go have to find out <laughs> in a second. Um, but thank you all so much for listening. And uh, we really appreciate you. And please tell a friend. Tell a friend about this podcast if you get a chance. That is our best way to spread the word about what special counsel is doing. And so people can get real, like, you know, truthful information uh, about these investigations. So we would love it if you would spread the word. Absolutely. Give, tell your smartest friends because, you know, you got to bring a little bit to the table here to be able to hang with all these court filings and stuff. <laughs> So uh, think about your smartest friend. Tell them to uh, to go out, find Jack at all any place where you prefer to get your podcasts, and uh, we super appreciate it. Although the holiday season is upon us, Andy, and one of my favorite things to do is to tell everyone when you go to your house and there's those MAGA relatives that we all know and love, just get their phone and subscribe to Jack <laughs> in their podcast app. <laughs> Um, And so they'll get, you know, get the notifications, turn on notifications. It's a free podcast. And then, you know, the next time Uncle Frank's at home chilling, thinking about donating $5, $10 to Sidney Powell's Defense Fund, maybe he'll listen to the Jack podcast instead. Hey, you never know. Could happen. Could happen. It's a fun holiday game. Bring them around. (laughs) We bring them around. All right. All right. Thank you, everybody. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. You've been listening to the Jack podcast. (laughs) 